And a big welcome to our live audience for Digital Health Investor Talk. I'm your host, Stephen Wardell. I'm the managing partner of Wardell Advisors, a digital health advisory firm, and the author of The Future of Digital Health. Wardell Advisors is helping digital health companies address issues around growth, fundraising, and trade sales. Uh, you can follow me at, at uh, twitter.com, x.com, slash Stephen Wardell. Our guest today is Jay Rugani. Jay is an investment partner at Andreessen Horowitz and formerly developed numerous partnerships at Flatiron Health. You can follow him at twitter.com slash jrugani. This show is being recorded and will be included in my podcast series called Digital Health Investor Talk. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify. This is not investment advice and we are not investment advisors. First off, here's the format of the show. It'll, it's about 90 minutes long, and Jay and I will spend the first half discussing the news and the macro picture and uh, some water cooler topics. And then for the second half, we'll focus on the topic of the day, which is um, the new go-to-market uh, strategies in digital health. After that, um, and throughout that, we'll be taking uh, questions from our audience. In order for you to do more than just watch, you need to register for an account with callin.com. To register, you can access Callin on the website callin.com or through the Callin social podcasting app in your app store. The Callin platform works similarly to Twitter Spaces for a modern social audience experience. Um, uh, so once you've registered, um, you can use the text chat or press the Callin button uh, to join us. So, Jay, welcome to the to the show. Steve, um, thanks for having me. Why don't you introduce yourself for a minute or two beyond that, that little professional introduction that I did? Yeah, real quick. Um, Jay Rogani, uh, an investment partner at Andreessen Horowitz. I've been investing in healthcare technology uh, here at A16Z for the last five years. Uh, and uh, I've been in healthcare my entire career, so I... Uh, come from a family of clinicians who desperately wanted me to be a doctor, uh, but I was more interested in, in economics and business and technology. Uh, uh, when I was in college, I was gearing up to get a PhD in economics. The global financial crisis was happening at the time, and that had a big impact on me. And, uh, and then an, an advisor, a mentor of mine, kind of advised me away from the academic route. And uh, sort of, I realized that I could have a lot more impact in industry uh, and then it, you know, through some work experiences, really realized that there's no greater economic problem in our country than healthcare, and that just inspired me to to, to get involved. I've had a couple different roles. Uh, you mentioned I was at Flatiron Health, the healthcare tech startup, and uh, I love I love just studying studying startups. So I'm excited for the conversation. That's great. Uh, so first, why don't we jump into the first topic, which is macro news. So. In the last week, probably the biggest macro story is that Fitch downgraded U.S. long-term debt from AAA to AA, and they downgraded the U.S. on the growth of our national debt. Um, uh, and uh, so my take on this, I like to look at things through the lens of the innovation economy and the CEO of a young digital health company. So th this is bad for the U.S. in general. In general, if you're an innovator, what you'd like to see is balanced U.S. budgets and a AAA credit rating. Uh, and if it is reduced to a AA plus credit rating, then it costs the U.S. potentially 
uh, more to to raise money and to raise future money and to service the national debt, uh, and that can in turn lead to an inflationary spiral that's bad for inflation. So, um, but this is tempered by we have a wonderful luxury here in the U.S. and the luxury is called Tina or there is no alternative, which is to say that the U.S. just got a bit riskier on a on a U.S. credit basis. Uh, but it's still the least risky in the world. Um, and for big institutions, there's no alternative. Uh, they, big institutions will often evaluate opportunities on a relative basis. They want to put their money in a relatively better place. There's no better alternative, even if U.S. credit is going down. There are smaller countries that still have a AAA rating, um, but they don't have the investment opportunities as the U.S. So, Jay, any thoughts on, on this news and the implications, if any, for the innovation economy? Yeah, I, I mean, from my perspective, it's an interesting point of view. From my perspective, I will say, despite my interest in economics, one of the reasons why I did not become an economist is because economists are terrible at making predictions. And uh, certainly um, interest rate predictions, uh, though many people have very strong opinions, um, is oftentimes hard hard, hard to, to, to do consistently with any reasonable accuracy. So, you know, for me, I'm... I'm it, predicting interest rates and what they will be, you know, a day from now, a week from now, a year from now is definitely outside of my zone of competence. Um, the, the, the perspective or the lens that I do take on it is I have a lot of conversations with entrepreneurs who ask the question, how should they think about the current fundraising environment, the, the current market environment, um, you know, and as it relates to how they think they should think about the capital strategy for their company, how much money should they raise, when, how should they think about operating? And, you know, look, from, from my perspective, uh, I, I would just make two quick comments. The first is, um, you know, interest rates do change the risk reward trade-off of investors and what they invest in. And so we were in a, in a ZERP, a zero interest rate environment, um, where uh, the alternative to investing in equities, whether it's public companies or private startups, was, you know, effectively, you know, series of bonds on a risk curve, but then also the, the risk-free rate, you know, what you could get in, in a, in a T-bill or treasury bill was basically 0%. You know, now that's closer to four or five, five and a half percent and, and seemingly rising. And so the alternative for a super risky startup asset that might produce a ton of cash flow 30 years from now um, sort of changes the risk reward trade-off for investing in startups. And as a result of that, there's been a lot um, fewer investors uh, uh, sort of stay in the space and investing investing in startups. So like that's one reality that I think is obvious to a lot of people. Um, we talk about that a lot internally and it's very, very difficult to predict, but it's it's kind of in, in some ways one cheeky way to, to, to describe it is like gravity has shifted and so you're kind of in a new in a new playing field. The founders whom I admire the most and who seem to have the best temperament with regards to what to do with in an uncertain interest rate environment is just to control what you can control. Um, and interest rates and thinking about interest rates is not stuff that you can control. Um, what you can control is how much you burn, how quickly you hire, how quickly you expand into new markets um, and, you know, being prudent about sort of, what you have to demonstrate for the next round with a lot greater uncertainty on when that next round might come. 
um, I think is really, really important. And so that's, that's at least the conversation that I have with regards to interest rates, but predicting interest rates uh, is not, is not my area of expertise. That's great. Thank you. That's a great perspective for entrepreneurs is, you know, uh, focus on what you can control. Don't let, uh, don't, don't get anxious over things you can't control. So uh, in addition, we've been following inflation and interest rates and the recent news on that front, first of all, August is a slow month, but the recent news has been mostly good. And this is in line with my optimistic thesis on a return of a more positive investor environment for digital health companies. So um, the last CPI print um, was lower than expected. uh, And the last uh, FOMC meeting, the Fed raised rates 25 basis points, which was at the low end of what was expected there. The Fed also had said that they will probably raise, that they may raise rates two times by the end of the year. So that gives us, you know, that that gives us um, five months and they've raised rates once at the low end of their range. So they may raise rates one more time, but they're also not having an emergency over inflation since inflation is, is, has been declining. So that, that's a good setup, I think, uh, is that in the next five months, we may see the Fed raise rates again. But, it's certain, but in the last six quarters, they raised rates at the fastest rate they've ever raised rates, causing a lot of anxiety, and that caused the NASDAQ to pull in a lot of anxiety uh, from invest and uncertainty for investors. Um, so, and then the next FOMC meeting is going to be September 19th to 20th. So we could probably expect them to raise zero or raise 25 basis points for that meeting. But that is a better setup for the next five months than we've had um, for any five month period um, in, in the last year and a half. So, uh, so I like that setup. Uh, and that's consistent with my thesis that we'll see uh, VCs get excited about investing their dry powder sooner rather than later, next six months, or uh, not next 18 months. So Jay, any any thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I mean, I would just say these are these are complex adaptive systems where the Fed is reading data and then they talk about what they are expecting they make decisions on rates. People interpret those rates, uh, those changes, and then uh, you know the economy. And there's so many other things that are happening in, in the economy. I, I think it would be, um, you know, I think I think it's, it would surprise a lot of people to see that the S and P 500 is near uh, or, or um, around its all-time highs. Uh, it's now that growth is very concentrated in seven or eight companies by and large. Um, a lot of the big tech companies, uh, NVIDIA, a lot of the sort of tailwinds around AI. Um, so these things are so dynamic. It kind of it's to my earlier point on if you're building in the space over analyzing what rates might be, um, you know, six to 12 months from now uh, will probably drive you crazy, but not probably do much for for your business. So that, that's at least how I think. That's about. great. Um, so then looking at the IPO window. So here. As in the innovation economy, we'd like to see the IPO window open. We'd like to see companies go out, IPO, return capital to investors. It helps us uh, to you know, know whether we can IPO in the future uh, and uh, what valuations we might get, et cetera. And so here, uh, you know, some interesting good news. The IPO window is closed now. It has been closed for six quarters or more. Um, and Renaissance Capital, which watches IPOs very closely, um, they say so far this year there have been 58 
IPO offerings during a time when the IPO window for most companies is closed. And that number is up 32% over a prior year, same period. Uh, and uh, uh, so, uh, and that, um, that, that offerings are up, um, uh, you know, uh, 126% compared to, uh, to 2022, uh, but the volume is still much lower than 2021. So that's good news. We're seeing an uptick in, in IPOs despite a generally closed window. We've also had successes of Kenview, the J&J consumer company, and, and, and Kava, the restaurant company. Um, and then something we're watching pretty closely, we want to see usually tech moves before digital health. So we want to see some tech IPOs that are very successful. And so Bloomberg is reporting uh, this has been rumored for a while that ARM uh, is going to IPO on the NASDAQ in September at a purported roughly $60 billion valuation as an AI play. They make chips for AI. Mm. So if I think if that lands in September, which is coming right up and is successful, what we're looking for is for it to go up about 15% or more in the first uh, day or for a couple days of trading and then to stay there and not fall. And if that happens, then that's a successful IPO. Uh, and then we could expect more tech IPOs and then more digital health IPOs to follow. Um, so uh, that would be a very good sign that would change the, the sentiment in the environment if we had uh, the IPO window open for tech and digital health. Jay, any, any thoughts on, you know, will we see the IPO window open? Uh, I have no idea, but uh, that would be, but I agree with you. That would be, that would be exciting. I, I, I think um, what has happened a lot over the last 12 to 18 months is a, uh, is a reset on multiples mm -hmm. across the board and, and um, a lot more discernment from public market investors on business model quality. Um, it, it was, it was very interesting to see, uh, VCs at all stages and public market investors look at a category and just apply a, a blanket high revenue multiple on that business without understanding the alt, the underlying cash dynamics of that business from revenue to gross profit, taking out operating expenses to get to actual how much um, profit that the, the, the uh, net profit that the, the business generates. And, um, and so what you saw was, businesses that were true services businesses that were not very predictable. They were every year when they would start, they, they have to sell all their contracts, you know, again, um, the relatively low gross margin uh, services, um, uh, you know, heavy um, human labor oriented businesses in healthcare uh, that were valued, like, you know, that were receiving SAS multiples. And I think that sort of healthy reset is, is happening. And so, I don't know exactly when the IPO window will open back up, um, but I but I am optimistic that there will always be demand for entrepreneurs who are building high quality, durable, defensible, cash flow generating businesses in the future um, across all industries and certainly certainly That's healthcare. Great. And by the way, to summarize something I've gone over with this audience before, so right now we're seeing that um, uh, in digital health fundraising deals in series C, D, crossover, and IPO. These are down 95 to 100% from 2020. 
from the 2021 period and the, and the IPO window is closed for digital health companies in general. So series A and B, volume there is down about 75%. And then for seed, volume is only down about 25%. So there's a lot of seed investing happening. Seed investors tend to be different people with different pools of capital, following different timelines, looking for different things, not, not as affected by whether the IPO windows open or not, whereas crossover investors are very affected by whether the, the IPO windows open or not. Um, and there's a little bit of a boom going on at the seed stage with AI and generative AI in healthcare. So that, that's part of what's going on that's keeping up those numbers in the seed stage. So the hope is that with a, if, a, if the IPO window opens for digital health, we'll see um, uh, funding activity across all those stages, especially the later stages pick up. Um, so the next is recession fears. So we've been talking pretty confidently for the last year about a recession coming up. So Fidelity is a top economist, puts us at the end of an expansionary period and the beginning of a contractory period. Larry Summers has been talking about going into hopefully a shallow recession. Um, we're definitely at the end of a long period um, of not being in a recession, but a predicted recession. Um, we had that recession fears, um, you know, uh, 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 of two quarters of, of, uh, of contraction recently. That was not that did not continue into a recession, but now we have new news from the past week, which is a number of Wall Street economists are reversing their prior positions. They're coming out, they're changing, they're saying that um, they don't think we'll enter into a recession in the next few months um, based on the strength of GDP growth and also high employment numbers. Um, so recessions are mostly bad for the innovation economy. They're mostly bad because. Uh, the innovation at young companies sell uh, uh, products into enterprise buyers and those enterprise buyers in a recession, they often feel poor and they often defer technology purchases in a recession. So this is good news if we're not going into a recession. Um, uh, sometimes recessions can also clear out competitors who are not very strong or meritorious. Uh, so recessions can serve a good purpose. Um, but in general, the idea that we're going to not go into a recession soon or skip a recession. That's pretty. That's good news in general for the innovation economy and also for everyone, basically. But Jay, any thoughts? You know, are, are we headed for a recession later this year, or do you think it's it's more likely that we're going to keep going with that one? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Recessions and, and bubbles are are funny because when everyone says we're in a bubble, um, it, it, it often it often means the exact opposite. Um, you know, typically bubbles uh, sort of catch catch folks by surprise, and that's why asset prices inflate disproportionately without without folks uh, correcting themselves. Um, so, you know, similar similar perspective. Quite frankly, it's 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 very difficult to predict, and quite frankly, it doesn't really change our business uh, to predict uh, whether when a recession in a bubble is happening. Um, but here's the other side that I'll, I'll give for, for your, per, you know, to your perspective. And you alluded to this a little bit, which is every company of any size competes in at least two markets. One, the market for its customers. Uh, and the other is the labor market, the market for talent. And so a lot of these sort of changing macro environments can provide a headwind and a tailwind for any given business. The headwind, as you described, uh, if we are in a recession, 
if um, enterprise or consumer buyers are feeling a little less wealthy, um, it, their, their cash balances are going down, their expenses perhaps are going up, um, or, you know, folks are feeling a little bit, um, you know, less comfortable on paper, they might spend less, uh, they might do budget cuts, et cetera. And um, that would be a headwind to, to a startup selling into an enterprise or to a consumer, to your point. But, but similarly, um, you know, if there's a lot less competition for talent and there's a lot, of, there's a lot fewer competition, uh, there's a lot fewer options for great talent to join, um, that can be a huge tailwind for companies, for good companies going through, uh, go through a recession. I'll, I'll give you one story that, that struck with me, which is um, I was having conversation with, uh, with a mentor of mine. Um, uh, he wouldn't mind me embarrassing him. Uh, Zad Nazim, who's um, a CTO of, of Yahoo.com in the very early days for about you know, 10 plus years through the dot-com boom and bust. And uh, we were talking a little bit about the current environment for startups and contrasting that to, uh, you know, what it was like in 98, 99, and then 2000, 2001, 2002. And the point that, that he made that I, that I find really interesting is what he saw is for any given important technology category, there was a fixed amount of capital and a fixed amount of talent that was interested motivated, passionate about that category. But in the boom, that capital and that talent was split across five, six, seven companies who were interested and motivated by that category. And then after the recession, uh, or sort of after the dot-com dot bust, credible players going after it. And so for the good quality companies in that given category, so assuming you can you can raise enough cash to survive, uh, those categories tend to consolidate. And so for that for for it, for the high quality businesses, uh, you actually get relief in the labor market as you're feeling pain in uh, you know the market demand for your customers uh, for your products. Excuse me. And so that's kind of my take on recessions, which is ultimately. It doesn't really matter because you're going to get headwind or tailwinds. You obviously have to think about your business and react differently, um, but but it can provide you know very different very different circumstances. That's really interesting. Thank you. Um, so now we're going to focus on uh, news, trade journal articles, and industry reports. For our audience, feel free if if you if there's a report that came out that you want to highlight. Uh, or a news story about the industry that you want us to comment on, feel free to throw that into the room chat. Um, but, uh, you know, Jay, I, I asked you about what's going on in healthcare this week. And the first thing you brought up that you thought was important was the story of the, the GLP-1 drugs and what's going on with them. So uh, can you tell us about, uh, about that story? Yeah, I, I... I mean, I think I know we're here to talk a lot about sort of software and technology, um, but uh, I very much include biotechnology in that. And uh, it has been very interesting to watch uh, for anyone interested in healthcare uh, what all the, the GLP ones or sort of this class of weight loss uh, of diabetes and weight loss drugs that have been that have been on market and are being studied in clinical trials for a broader set of indications and in patient populations. Um, showing some pretty dramatic results. Um, now, uh, let's at least for this for today's discussion, just assume that it's appearing to be you know what could be a miracle drug. 
Um, a lot of the efficacy and safety data across a broader set of indications and treatment settings is on the come. Um, and so we're obviously still as a, as a community still learning, uh, uh, you know, what's going on. But for folks who've been following, you know, Eli Lilly's drug or Novo's drug or some of the other drugs, you're seeing a few dramatic things. I mean, you're seeing dramatic weight loss in, uh, in, in uh, patients with, with, uh, with obesity or um, with diabetes and a number of indications. There was a recent article in the Atlantic uh, recounting patients taking Ozempic for weight loss but describing that they had reduced cravings for alcohol, for cigarettes, for TikTok, for binge shopping. Um, and then there was data ye just yesterday from a, from a Novo study finding, uh, it was a phase three study, I believe, that, that showed a 20% reduction in cardiovascular events uh, for patients who are taking uh, their drug um, uh, for obesity. And so, you know, again, really exciting, promising results uh, that are popping up. It could be, uh, you know, again, it could be a miracle drug that uh, many folks across the population, uh, both domestically and around the world will want to take, and yet is raising really interesting questions around safety, which we mentioned, but also around how we pay for this stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, I know you've spent, you, you used to be a cell site analyst. I know you spent a lot of time, um, you know, covering uh, different healthcare companies uh, I'd be curious your take on, uh, you know, on what you make of, uh, of these big blockbuster drugs. So, uh, it, it continues to show a number of things. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, uh, one is, is just how attractive the, the pharma market is, uh, you know, drugs that can go to multi, uh, multi-billion dollar revenue with extremely high margins in a short period of time. Um, and, uh, you know, and I'd, I'd call this mostly a surprise. By the way, I think a, a lot of Americans, you know, got a big uh, jolt of news about about these GLP-1s uh, because the Hollywood star named Jonah Hill, who a lot of people know, he uh, showed up mm. uh, at uh, Thin. And, and is this is apparently due to a GLP-1. And no one's ever seen him in his entire Hollywood career thin before. But he was looking very uh, athletically thin. I think a lot of people are going to see that, be motivated by that, uh, want to try it. Um, uh, and this could be, uh, you know, obesity is such a problem in and of itself and because it contributes to other morbidities that, um, that uh, you know, a, a, drug, a, a miracle working drug is, is sort of just what, just what the doctor ordered. Um, from a digital health perspective, and, and uh, you know, one of the, in, we've, we've seen, you know, digital health companies often sell into enterprise budgets and the pharma budgets are looking very attractive right now. So um, selling into the hospital CIO budget, that's a challenging budget to sell into because the CIOs are feeling poor right now. Selling into the, the uh, employer benefits leader budget is a challenging budget right now because that is a very clogged and crowded channel. And those buyers are wanting to shift to more of an enterprise buy, which, which helps incumbents and hurts challengers uh, as vendors in that sector. Um, but the pharma budget, so there's, there's two main pharma budgets. There's the pharma commercial budget, and that's companies like Viva selling CRM software into pharma uh, brand managers and sales leaders and that sort of thing. Um, and then there's the clinical budget. And that's companies like Medidata selling clinical trial automation software into the pharma clinical leaders. Um, and both of so far, I think we're going to see pharma continue to be rich uh, in general uh, and spendy on tech 
for a while. And I think that the ratio of entrepreneurs to spending selling into the pharma tech budget is one of the most favorable in all of digital health. So if you're selling into the hospital CIO, there's a lot of entrepreneurs doing that and the hospital CIO does not feel spendy right now. If you're selling into a pharma tech budget, um, there's not a lot of entrepreneurs doing that and pharma is feeling rich and spendy. And, and that, I see that staying the same for the next two plus years. So that's my, my uh, that's how I relate the story of the GLP ones to, uh, to digital health. Um, yeah, well, I think, I think there's a lot of, a lot of challenges. So these are looking to be multi-billion dollar global drug franchises for multiple pharma companies. And in order for, uh, for these pharma companies to realize these, um, you know, the, the massive sales potential for a lot of, for a lot of these uh, drugs, they're going to need to overcome some serious operational challenges. So there's been a number of articles talking about supply chain shortages for these drugs, um, coordinating global supply chains to be able to be flexible to demand that's popping up very, very rapidly. Um, there's been a number of payment challenges uh, and sort of clever reimbursement strategies and in, in sort of helping consumers pay out of pocket for a lot of the cost here, how insurance companies will justify the ROI and think about uh, paying for this. So if I were a digital health entrepreneur looking at this sector, whether you're looking at, uh, you know, drug distribution or drug development and sort of evidence generation, whether you're looking at drug distribution and market access, whether you're looking at care delivery for the space, uh, there's, I, I think there's a lot of software opportunities for, uh, you know, for companies that coordinate uh, a lot, the many moving pieces across this uh, drug supply chain. That's great. Thanks. Well, so uh, for time reasons, I'm going to move on to some other, um, some other stories, uh, and then we'll, we'll get to our go to market, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, half of the show starting at about um, 445 uh, Eastern time. Um, but so just, just looking at some, some trade journal news. So the first thing I know yeah, I see. I see. I see Bonnie's question. Uh, so it sounds like there's demand for uh, for go to market strategies, which we will we, yep. we will definitely talk about. Um, so just some some trade journal news. So I noticed that um, a, a fund I hadn't heard of before, Distributed Ventures, uh, Sean Ellis. There, they raised a hundred million dollar early stage digital health venture fund. So that's fantastic. Supposedly, it's a terrible environment to raise next funds or new funds in. Um, and yet, nevertheless, we have seen um, uh, defined ventures uh, raise a $400 million early stage venture fund. That was that, that, That's very large for an early stage fund. Uh, and now we're seeing uh, Sean Ellis raise a fund. Uh, and so I'm, I'm getting a sense that uh, if it was very difficult to raise a next fund or a new fund in digital health, that we're seeing results that indicate that there's a, a break in the log jam um, and it may be. And, and so this, this is very this is a signal of very good news. I think that we're not seeing a total freezing of uh, of the ability of, L, of of funds to raise next funds from LPs. Um, so, uh, uh, Jay, are you following that? Are you seeing that, 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 that digital health funds are having difficulty raising next funds? And is, is this a signal that it's going to get easier after six after six quarters of problems? Yeah, I think, uh, so I, I have seen a lot of the, the news um, headlines and press releases on new funds and new companies, new company finances getting announced. 
um, it's hard to know when those funds and when those companies actually close those rounds. Uh, a lot of times that, that could have happened a year ago or two year ago, two years ago. And so I generally myself don't read too much into the headlines of, of new financing announcements um, at the fund level or at the company level and extrapolate that to, you know, what's the current market environment. I do hear um, from a number of LPs that, uh, you know, there's just a lot more um, financings are taking a little bit longer, both at the fund level and at the company level, which by and large, I think is an amazing thing because it allows investors, uh, whether it's LPs or whether it's, uh, whether it's VCs investing in startups, a lot more time to do diligence, ask the hard questions, really understand the opportunity, et cetera. Um, and, and the other way around too, like, it's really great for, uh, for founders to be able to actually spend time with the people that they're, um, you know, they're ideally going to be in business with for 10 plus years, um, at a minimum. And so that's, I, I, I'm not sure about the funding pacing, um, but the, but the timeline for any given process, I think is a little bit longer. And I think that's healthy. And in general, News of the last two weeks, uh, you know, what I'm seeing is there continue to be fewer digital health funding announcements, um, more shutdowns and layoff uh, announcements. Um, uh, and um, those fundraisers that we do see do not look like classic deals. A classic deal would be to see a lead investor who's a famous mainstream digital health lead investor, followed by a couple other famous mainstream digital health lead investors not seeing uh, so as much of that because uh, of the pullback in activity by digital health investors. So that, that trend, which we've been seeing for over a year, continues. Um, but what we, what we are seeing is, for example, Taito Care. So this is a, a favorite of a lot of people. They make um, virtual care instruments and provide some virtual care as well. Um, and so here, the company uh, CEO, Deddy Gilad, um, they raised 49 million in a fund led by Insight Partners. I think this was an Israeli heavy round uh, for the company, although the funds are going to be used um, uh, uh, in the U.S. and other places. And it was specifically funds used to explore cases, use cases of AI in diagnostic support and remote examinations. So once again, here's a fundraise that is uh, hinged on AI. That's good to see. Um, uh, and... Um, uh, so then also Augmetics. So Augmetics is a, an augmented reality surgical navigation platform. Um, they, they announced they had purchased uh, about a million dollars worth of digital health assets from um, Surgaline and Holosurgical. Uh, Surgaline had filed for bankruptcy in June. So here we're seeing asset purchases, acquisitions happening, asset purchases happening. We're seeing uh, 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 that... Um, more M&A activity that may have been held off in the past because it was so easy to raise money instead of sell yourself as a company. We're seeing a pickup in this, whether it's, um, whether it's uh, acquiring companies or acquiring assets in a bankruptcy. So that, that's up as well. Um, so the, the, those are just some representative deals, but we're not seeing a whole lot of mainstream deals. Um, and so, uh, Jay, any, any thoughts on the fundraising environment of the last two weeks uh, or any, any, um, deals, whether it's a fundraise or an acquisition or uh, a bankruptcy that, that I think is noteworthy? 
Yeah, I mean, there's a, so a law firm Cooley puts out a report um, on sort of deal pacing in, in the venture space that I think is, is, is really good. So I, w- I would look there. And that report basically shows that, you know, overall deal pacing uh, over the last couple of years has slowed down. Um, overall venture dollars deployed, it has slowed down a little bit. Um, and then prices have come down a little bit. Uh, but I, I, I would say that that is really at the, at the ecosystem level. And I think it's m- more, my impression is that it, that's more a function of firms that were perhaps not traditionally investing in these categories who came in to the space over the last couple of years and now are no longer interested in that space and have left the space. I would say for us, and that's why I don't overread into, and I think a lot of people, um, I, I, I like very distinctly remember when I was at Flatiron, I would, I would read all this. I was trying to learn about startups and venture investing and how this all worked. And I would read press releases and try to infer, um, you know, the, the heat of the market. And it, it generally doesn't give you a good sense because again, these deals are done at various different times. And then they've chosen to announce themselves and announce the financing at a particular point in time for a strategic marketing reason. Um, but I, I would say for, at least can give our perspective, like our deal pacing um, is, has been relatively consistent, uh, varies a little bit by sector, but our objective when we raise a fund is uh, to raise a fund that is, it is going to last at least 10 years, uh, if not longer, we might invest, um, we might make initial new investments in the first one and a half to three and a half years of that fund. And that can totally vary. We might do follow on investing, um, you know, in the second half of the period, and then we would invest out of a new fund. And the reason why we do that is macro environments change and interest rates are really hard to predict and asset prices go up and down. And so ideally, um, if we are being relatively consistent about how we're investing and the amount we're investing quarter over quarter, or at least year over year, um, then we can sort of do, we can have some time-based diversification over the course, over the deployment period of a fund over the, you know, two to three years that I described. So that's, that's my read. It's not as exciting as uh, the headlines of everything going to the moon and then everything coming to a halt. Um, But it's, it's at least what I'm seeing um, in my day to day. That, that's great. Thanks. Um, so I'm going to skip to, to the topic of conferences um, just to, in, a, in the name of time here. So um, August is a pretty dead time for conferences. People are looking forward to the fall for conferences. Um, and I think that the big conference everyone's thinking about is the health conference this year. So I've been hearing that people are buying tickets early to the health conference. Um, it's October 8th to 11th in Las Vegas. Um, uh, and uh, people are also talking about potentially skipping JP Morgan, which happens the second week of January in San Francisco for a number of reasons. Um, but so if I were a digital health CEO, would I go to the health conference? And I think it is a good health conference to go to. It's a fun conference. They make the sector interesting. There's very heavy representation by VCs uh, there. And so this is a, you go there primarily to meet with VCs. VCs are in meeting mode. It's easier to get meetings. They're in person. If you have VCs you've talked with by, by Zoom, uh, now's a good time to ask to meet them in person. Bring an update of news to tell them about your company. Um, but this is a great one to get a lot of meetings done. If you have 
if you're trying to meet with geographically undesirable people, people who live in, in you know, Wisconsin or Texas or something, uh, and you don't want to fly there, uh, at, invite to meet them at, at the at the health conference. Uh, that's a great way to, to get those meetings going. Uh, it's good to use as a forcing factor where if you're trying to get something done, you can meet with par parties there. So where I think I'm disappointed and, and uh, in the health conference is that I know they're trying to get uh, incumbents and consolidators there, they're trying to get them there for product development partnerships, sales channel partnerships, company acquisitions uh, there. And I, I think they've been pretty weak at getting those executives there. They occasionally get innovation executives from large consolidators there, um, but they seldom get the, the very senior executives or the consolidator executives um, to come. I know that, uh, and, and software purchasers, it, it, so it's not a great conference necessarily um, to expect to find your customers there um, or uh, consolidator executives there or or partnering executives there. I know that they're working on that. So that's a little bit of a disappointment there. All in all, I think it's worth it to go for the investors uh, at, at, the, at the health conference. And then reflecting on San Francisco, I think I'm gonna go to both this year, health and JP Morgan. But uh, a lot of people are unhappy with JP Morgan for a number of reasons. The first is that um, it's not a true conference. You're, you're not invited by JP Morgan to their conference. You're showing up and trying to make meetings happen. There's no programming uh, to go to. Um, uh, and uh, fundamentally, JP Morgan, the investment bank, is what their core focus is public biotech at that conference. So you're going to someone else's conference that's not focused on digital health. Um, and you're going because so many other healthcare executives are going, there's a good chance you can get some good meetings out of it. But people are increasingly in digital health are increasingly unhappy with JP Morgan uh, and they, they like health, which is um, uh, health is focused on the healthcare services and digital health side. It's not so much focused on biotech uh, over at the health conference. Um, so I, I know a lot of people in digital health and, and with JP Morgan, everyone has stories about extremely high hotel prices and crowding and running around in the rain and being lost. Uh, and uh, there's, it's not a high quality conference put on for them. It's find your own hotel and, and walk around in the rain trying to meet people. And people are, are a little bit upset with that. There's also the more recent development of San Francisco and Union Square um, having, uh, becoming a little dystopian and having crime and other problems. And people are a little concerned about going for that reason. So Jay, any, any sense, you know, is, is, is Andreessen Horowitz putting on a big show at either or both of these conferences for digital health? Uh, and any sense as to what are you advising portfolio companies as to how to think about these two conferences? Yeah. So for, so first of all, uh, uh, I think Tani in the chat brought up the most important point, which is um, who, who is performing at health? Because I think last time uh, we were there, I think Ludacris performed, which uh, which is ridiculous. I think I've seen in one of the years, Flowrider performed, which uh, was was ridiculous. Uh, so I, I don't know that that would that would be um, that's the that's the big question. Maybe we follow up with the audience on that. I yeah, I think so. Um, Okay, so so if you are a startup and you're trying to, to do business development and you've got limited resources and limited time, should you spend time at any of these conferences? Um, so, I, I, look, the, my, my take is that uh, 
for a lot of these conferences, there are in any one of these organizations that you're trying to sell into providers, payers, pharma companies, whatever, there are talkers and then there are doers. And there is a Venn diagram of the two. There are certainly people, uh, many people who speak at these conferences who are, um, you know, very much empowered within their organization to make decisions on build by decisions and, uh, you know, make decisions on, on which uh, startups to partner with. But the challenge is figuring out where an individual fits within that overlapping Venn diagram. And some of these conferences I find are enriched with just the talkers, which you can learn a lot going to those conferences and listening to people who are really intelligent um, and really knowledgeable in a given category. Um, but if you're, that's only if your objective is to learn. But if your objective is to do business development, then um, you know, I might take a, a more specific lens. And the example I'll give you is, so when I was at Flatiron, one of the things that um, we were very rigid about or very um, judicious about is finding where, where do our actual end customers spend time? Uh, and it turned out that ASCO, the American Society for Clinical Oncology, puts on this big annual conference in Chicago every year. And uh, it was that conference that was actually the highest density for us, not JP Morgan, not, uh, I can't remember if, if health was around at the time, but various different conferences, conferences like that um, were less effective for us. Uh, so the, the, the BD leaders and founders who I see do it best are the ones that in their given space find out where is the best industry conference where all their buyers are hanging out. You know, if you're selling in pharmacy, Assembia is another good example. I mean, there's different ones for every different therapeutic area. That would be, that would be my, that's at least certainly what I would do uh, if I were in their shoes. And that, that's a great point. So there's also, I, you know, I, I recognize what you're talking about and I, I would frame it a little differently, which is that very, so in the case of health, people are going there to meet with VCs. There is very good VC representation at health. Um, it's weaker in other areas, but for a lot of conferences, maybe you're going there to sell or have a sales channel partnership. Um, and uh, there's been this, this uh, kind of game of, um, of the key decision makers. Are they really going to the conference? Uh, and so an example of this is that if you cycle back 10, 15 years ago, hospital CIOs were the real buyers of EMRs and clinical decision support software, and they did go to hymns. And you could, you could meet with some of the, either the, the CIO of a hospital or with uh, people pretty high up in the, in the food chain there. And over time, I think that hospital CIOs got over-prospected, didn't find the value themselves, started going less. So you had these uh, vendors with giant booths trying to meet with hospital CIOs and, and hospital CIOs were, were getting harder and harder um, and less and less to meet and less and less available. This was also happening over in, in the field of digital health benefits. This was happening with the conference called the National Business Group on Health. Here, you used to have benefit leaders and heads of HR would go to this conference and vendors could expect to be able to pitch them and meet with them. And over time, the senior decision makers started going less and less and more junior members of their departments would go. And so vendors were paying for big booths at these conferences and then not finding they could meet with senior decision leaders. Meanwhile, over in the world of hospital CIOs, 
they started going to different conferences. They started to go to the Chime conference, or some of them are now going to the Vive conference. And so there's this, this is riddle that you're playing of where are the, where are the real decision makers going next? And what's your real objective? And do you really want to meet with the decision makers? And where are they going next? Because it may be a, a counterintuitive. It may be not what everyone else is doing. Um, and that's, that's hard to, uh, to figure out. But, what I am hearing is that if it's fundraising is what you're after and you want to do in-person meetings instead of Zoom calls, um, you know, health has pretty good coverage from, from VCs there. So, um, so uh, any other uh, conferences coming up in the September, October timeframe from the perspective of, of either young companies in general or specific subcategories of young companies that, that you're thinking of going to or that you're, th you're recommending to portfolio companies to go to? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the the point that you made is the right one, which is it. You, there's no blanket conference. There's sort of specific conferences for your business objective, whether it's learning, whether it's fundraising, whether it's business development, and then in the context of your specific industry. Um, I will be at Health. I will be at J.P. Morgan. A lot of uh, folks on our team uh, will be at both. Uh, I don't think you need to go to any of those conferences to meet me or us. Um, there's plenty of other ways to, to, to meet us. And so, um, I, I wouldn't do it just, I, I wouldn't go and spend the money and all that just for that. Uh, there's, there's probably a lot of other ways, um, that, that you could spend your time, but, but I will be there and, um, it tends to be a great way to, to catch up with people. That, that's great. So now personal notices. Um, so for my own personal notices, um, you know, uh, the next, Boston Digital Health Drinks Nights for August is going to be tomorrow night, August 10th, 530 to 8.30. This time we're doing it in Lexington instead of downtown Boston. Um, our topic for the evening is uh, what's standing in the way of value-based care. So if you're in Boston, I welcome you to register and attend. Um, and you can find the registration page. Go to my Eventbrite page at stevemordell.eventbrite.com. Uh, I'll be there. I hope you'll be there if you're Boston-based. Um, so that's tomorrow night, um, our August Drinks Night. Uh, and then our next show is going to be next is going to be September 6th. Uh, it's called uh, Supercharging Innovation in Healthcare, um, Understanding Special Problems in Healthcare uh, and Leveraging Technologies like Web 2.0, Web 3.0, AI and more. Um, so, Jay, do you have any any personal notices, any any um, events you're attending? None, no, none for me, except that none of this is investment advice which my compliance team well, that, great. reminds me to say. Um, good. So now we're moving on to our main topic, which is uh, the new go-to-market strategies in health tech. So uh, I know that you and the whole um, Andreessen Horowitz bio team, you guys have met with thousands of digital health companies who've taken a lot of approaches to getting their software products to market. Um, uh, and uh, and the, the traditional approaches have been often called B2B and B2C, but they're running into problems. They're running into problems of over-prospecting or they're running into problems of, um, uh, of, uh, uh, of you know, sort of, uh, uh, of uh, hard to break through the clutter. Um, and so uh, you recently published a number of pieces uh, under the heading of Digital Health Builders on the Andreessen Horowitz site. So I recommend for our audience to check these out. Uh, it'll take quite a while. I'm still working my way through them. It'll take quite a while uh, to go through the, 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 the very the large amount of very good content and serious articles they've put there. 
but it's but search digital health builders and you know a16z uh, for that page and you can find that page and we're here to talk about some of the findings of that today um, but but you guys concluded that there are two traditional approaches to going to market and these have some growing problems in digital health and you also looked at more innovative strategies that are having some success in certain circumstances and you found five noteworthy innovative strategies of, of go to market and so can you tell us this story you know what are the traditional ways to go to market and what's going on why don't we start with the traditional ways to go to market and what's going on with those traditional approaches yeah so thanks for the for the opportunity to talk about this this is where uh this is why i came on the show i'm, I'm extremely passionate about um about distribution and uh, and healthcare technology and how to get them in the hands of, of patients and providers and researchers and other folks that, that need these technologies. And so um, uh, I feel really privileged to be able to meet so many founders that are finding creative ways to get their technology to market. And I'm, I'm really passionate about the work that we, we put out there. So thank you for that. Um, so the, the entire A16Z team um, has spent a lot of time collectively in healthcare technology and in biotechnology um, over the course of our careers. And, um, you know, healthcare is a, is a frustrating industry. It is a, you know, over $4 trillion sector. Um, the, the experiences that uh, we have as consumers with our healthcare system lag far behind uh, our experiences with other industries. You know, we're able to order a car, uh, order food, uh, pay a, you know, pay a friend, um, you know, purchase clothes, whatever, with a tap and a swipe on our phone. And yet our healthcare experiences feel fundamentally broken. Um, and then, you know, the overall healthcare system just has all kinds of misaligned incentives and, and you know, broken processes and experiences um, and bloat. Uh, it, it's just really frustrating for anyone who studied that, uh, to study the sector. And um, for people interested in technology, um, they see a lot, we collectively see a lot of opportunity for technology to fix a lot of these broken processes in healthcare. And yet um, uh, digital health as a, as a category, um, which used to be called healthcare IT, um, has been a relatively stale category uh, by and large. There have, been, there have been wins, there have been ex, you know, exciting um, companies, but if you look at sort of 2000 to 2010, 2010 to 2020, um, there's a really large graveyard of healthcare IT companies with cool, promising technology innovation that couldn't make it to market. And, um, and by the way, that graveyard, unfortunately, has accumulated even more very well-intentioned um, digital health startups, um, you know, over the last few years. Um, and so we as a team wanted to study, uh, you know, number one, why is that, why, why was that happening? And, uh, and number two, the companies that were breaking through, are they doing, um, what are they doing differently, if at all? And what we, you know, what we basically determined uh, was that there are multiple generations of healthcare IT companies that, um, that struggled, you know, effectively to get their struggled to get lift off, not because their products and services and services were not transformative, um, or that the technology didn't you know, hold a lot of promise, but rather 
they could not figure out one thing, which is distribution. They could not find an executable path for sustainable distribution and value capture. And so um, historically, this had been a very you know, difficult hill to climb. And um, what we basically found is most companies in, all, in, in a bunch of industries, they either sell to consumers or they sell to businesses. And, um, and what was happening in healthcare was that um, companies that were going B2B or B2C were failing for some reasons that were nuanced to the industry. And so let's just take them in turn. Um, for B2B, if you're selling to an enterprise, the sales cycles would just be extraordinarily long to sell a healthcare IT solution into a healthcare provider, a healthcare payer, um, uh, you know, a self-insured employer or a, you know, a pharmaceutical company. And some of that was due to, you know, overall immaturity of the market uh, and, you know, the, the sort of understanding on the buyer side of how to use and absorb these technologies, how to pay for them. Um, they didn't often, you know, fit into, you know, existing budgets and care plans so, and, but, and so on and so forth. If I could just jump in for but a second. So lot, but, I have friends oh, who sell um, yeah. B2B software into the Fortune 500. And for them, a long sales cycle is 12 months. It'd be hard to yeah. imagine a sales cycle longer than 12 months. In healthcare, if you sell to hospitals or payers, 18 months would be a short sales cycle. So um, it's, 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 it's so different. It's so much harder. 100%. And um, there's an, there's another important nuance to why an 18 to 24 month sales cycle was prohibitive for a lot of startups to get their product to market. And that is typically when a startup is raising money from a VC, they're raising for 18 to 24 months of runway. And so effectively what that means is you've got to have your entire customer buyer pipeline set up before you raise money and then work through that 18 to 24 month sales cycle in order to close before you need to raise to the, you know, raise the next financing. And Oh, by the way, um, even if you extend your, your runway, uh, you shouldn't be raising when you're about to run out of cash. You're typically raising, you know, when you have a year plus of runway, ideally. Um, and so the, the, the venture model just wasn't suiting the adoption cycle of a lot of these technologies on the B2B side. Um, and then just to round out answering your question, like why was it so hard on the B2C side? Um, it, you know, similar healthcare in most industries, you have a buyer uh, and you have a seller. And in healthcare, you have uh, not 15 stakeholders. The transaction typically has gone from two stakeholders to three. You have a buyer of the, the product or service you have the, the provider of the product or service, and then you have the consumer of the product or service. I'm the patient, I'm consuming the, the, the healthcare service, um, but my insurance company or my employer is paying for it for a lot of services. Now there's been some more, there's been some increasingly exciting trends with more uh, of the healthcare burden moving to the consumer through healthcare savings accounts, uh, excuse me, health savings account, HSAs, or um, you know, an increasingly conscious consumer uh, to navigate their own healthcare. So there are exceptions to, you know, there are great B2B healthcare software companies. There are great B2C healthcare software companies. But but just to set the stage and to answer your question, we were frustrated by that. And so we wanted to study other ways that that entrepreneurs were going to market. That, that uh, That's great. So you talked about um, B2, you know, classic B2B. So that is uh, companies like Cerner selling EMR, 
to the hospital CIO um, or uh, Livongo selling uh, diabetes solutions to the employer benefit leader um, or Medidata selling clinical trial automation software to the pharma clinical budget. Um, and then B2C, that, that's companies like, um, when I think of B2C, I think of Noom selling weight loss direct to consumer. I think of Fitbit selling activity trackers direct to consumer. I think of, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, and so um, any other um, B2C companies that, that you think of automatically when you think of digital health B2C, because our audience may be a little less familiar with B2C. I think uh, so. Him, I mean, Hims and Hers is, is another one that came came up. I think they just reported uh, they just reported some really stellar results. I think they're over. Don't I don't want to misquote, but I think they were over two hundred million in revenue and growing growing at a pretty fast clip. So there are examples of of you know fast growing B two C companies in healthcare, but um, so but that's really interesting because they're a provider and a prescriber's involved and a payer's probably involved, but not necessarily. But nevertheless they're being very creative about how they market. And so it's much more consumer driven than your typical provider organization. So that, that, that's a really interesting example, thanks. Um, so then you looked at uh, the, the problems of B2B and B2C in healthcare. Um, and then you, 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 you found from portfolio companies, examples of alternate go-to-market strategies. Can you tell, and there's, there's five of them. So um, can you go, can you sort of walk us through um, these five and helps understand them. Yeah. So um, what we saw were not brand new motions that had never existed in in technology broadly. Um, but what we saw was founders taking increasingly creative paths to market, um, and we saw with increasing frequency five particular go to market motions that had existed in consumer and enterprise technology and even to some extent in healthcare just come up with more frequency. And so I'll, I'll quickly enumerate the five. We've published a bunch of content on it um, that goes into a lot more detail, but there were, there were five that, that stood out to us in particular. Um, the first one is B2C to B. Um, it, it's sometimes known as product-led growth. Uh, this is the motion of a company that's, that initially goes B2C and sells directly to patients, to employees, to clinicians, to scientific res uh, uh, researchers within a, within a large organization. Um, and they sell them the product directly, and then they leverage the usage data, the product iteration, and the overall uh, adoption and excitement to go to B2B um, over time. So, you know, a company like Benchling, for example, uh, in our portfolio, sold software uh, to individual scientists, um, electronic lab notebook, collaboration software, project management software, workflow software. Um, to manage their their experimentation, um, and then they would go to the CIO ultimately of a of a pharmaceutical company and say, um, you know, hey, we've got this we've got this exciting product for you. Are you you know are you interested? How would you use it? And oh, by the way, a hundred, two hundred, five hundred of your employees are already using it. So you know, uh, there's a pretty good chance that um, this product might be adopted by your organization if you, if you roll it out. So that's that's B 2 C to B. Um, the second one that we wrote about was uh, was risk based contracting. You know, for folks who have been in healthcare, healthcare's been on a on a transition from fee for service medicine to value based care for a very long time. Um, but what we saw with yeah, with increasing frequency were digital health companies 
that were initially getting a lot of pushback from, uh, you know, an example of, let's say it's a, a virtual care offering pitching to a health insurance company and going traditional B2B, they would get a lot of pushback from organizations, uh, from payers on, well, do we actually want to make this service in network? Will people actually use it? Will it have clinical ROI? Will it reduce the cost of care? We saw these digital health companies effectively put their fees at risk, put their money where their mouth is and says, okay, no problem. Let's, let's charge um, a, a per member per month uh, fee for our service uh, or even a per engaged member per month uh, for only for uh, members who actually use the offering. Um, but then all of our fees are at risk and we'll, we'll predetermine some criteria uh, on which we'll, we'll either say if it, if it works, we get paid. And if it doesn't, uh, we don't in some sort of payment reconciliation um, agreement that's predetermined. So that's number two. Um, number three was sort of multi-sided networks. These were businesses that were selling software services tools to one stakeholder within healthcare. And then because they had either, uh, because of some proprietary um, capability that they acquired from, from serving that one side of the market, they were able to deliver a unique product to another stakeholder. So the example um, that I lived was at Flatiron Health, where we sold provider-facing software, electronic health record software, practice management software to community oncology practices and academic medical centers across the country. And then we processed the clinical data from the EHR and made that data useful for research and then partnered with life sciences companies to do, to do various forms of cancer research. Um, so that was multi-sided networks. Um, we, number four, we saw um, increasing sophistication on the, on the healthcare side of small and medium-sized businesses um, want to adopt more software. And so we saw a number of uh, companies take a go-to-market motion where they don't do a big B2B motion to, to your point, the CIO of a big health system or to the chief human resources officer of a large health plan or a pharmaceutical company, but rather go to SMBs, um, you know, small two, three, five doctor practices uh, and do so in a very scalable way because you have all sorts of acquisition economics that are challenging, you know, when you're selling 10, 50, you know, uh, you know, 10, 50 K contracts, it requires a little bit of nuance on how you go to market there. Um, we saw that with increasing frequency. We wrote about that. Um, and then fifthly, we, we saw an increasing prevalence of companies selling through distribution channels um, or, or through channel partners. Um, and so, you know, we saw companies selling through uh, Express Scripts um, digital health formulary. We saw companies sell through Accolades partner program and using that as a way to shortcut, um, you know, shortcut go to market uh, and, and sort of attacking a broader segment through a, through a narrower but, but concentrated channel. So happy to go into detail on any of those, but um, those were a lot of nuanced go to market motions that I think give, give founders a lot of really creative ways. Um, to get to market and shortcut some of the laws of physics and distribution in healthcare. And so we just felt compelled to write about it and share it with the community. That's great. Thank you. Very interesting. A really good summary. Um, and let me open it up to our audience to ask their questions about these. I, I also have some questions, so I'll lead with, with some questions. And then for our audience, uh, feel free to ask questions by putting them in the chat room. Um, so I guess... Um, you know, when I think about risk-based contracting, here's here is some 
some things I've heard about this. I'd love to get your reaction. Uh, so the first, which is good, is that very often incumbents can't do risk-based contracting. They're, they're locked in uh, their own margins, their own performance, their own uh, job evaluations are, are locked into a previous way of doing things. They, they just don't want to do risk-based contracting. In certain cases, their products don't really work. They're bought, but they don't work. And so therefore, they really don't want to go at risk. And an innovator with a new software solution, new better data, things like that can, can be effective and can sell. So having a, 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 a competitor whose product doesn't work and who sells on a utilization basis, but not on an effectiveness basis, that's great. Having a competitor who's locked in for business model reasons into the old way of doing things, that's great. All this is really great. Um, so now um, I've also heard some objections. The first objection is that if you're a young challenger company, you tend to have a small balance sheet, a weak balance sheet. But if you're going risk-based, you're actually putting your own balance sheet to work and at risk backing your product. Uh, and so you're, you're having the least capable people. You know, if your competitor is Philips, Philips has a big balance sheet that in theory, they might not they might not want to go at risk in theory they could go at risk they have a big balance sheet um uh you know but you're this small company going at risk uh versus a big competitor um and also you're selling into a big enterprise they have a big balance sheet you know but they're asking you to bear the risk on your little balance sheet so that that's one problem uh, and then another problem i've seen is that sometimes buyers don't want to go at risk. Obviously, this would be a contraindication to going to doing this. But for example, um, uh, Teladoc would, um, you know, they would target uh, employers believed with Teladoc that employees wouldn't use it. And so Teladoc would, um, would uh, uh, guarantee certain levels of utilization that were high and then if they hit those or went above them, they got paid more. And if they got hit below those levels of utilization, they got paid less. And employers loved to get a proposal from Teladoc side, side by side, purely utilization-based versus risk-based for the use of Teladoc. And then they would almost always buy the utilization, not the risk-based. And the reason was that as, as a department head in their company, it was a huge problem that they had to pay a vendor more than expected. <laughs> so they didn't, they wanted Teladoc to stand by its, behind its product. They wanted to see innovation from Teladoc, but they didn't want to actually buy a contract that had a risk of having to pay to pay more to Teladoc. They liked the fixed nature of, uh, of contracts. So any thoughts on, on those yeah. issues around, have, have you seen those issues and, <clears throat> and any, any thoughts about that and, and, and more? Yeah. So, um, you're bringing up great points. I, I would make two, two comments, sort of two tactical things to consider, um, you know, as founders are working through this. So, uh, you know, for the, for the first, um, you're sort of bringing up this question of like how to, how to underwrite the risk, uh, particularly when you don't have the balance sheet to underwrite. And um, what we see some of the best companies do is start on a spectrum of risk and then gradually move along the risk curve over time. And here's what I mean by that. You might start with a, um, you know, you, you might start with one of your customers and say, we'll have a percent fixed fee for our services. 
But then if we agree on a certain set of benchmarks ab above which you want us to outperform, we would have an upside only payment. In that scenario for a startup, uh, for a digital health company, they're not putting any of their balance sheet at risk. They're accepting you know, a lower revenue upfront. Um, and presumably you've sort of structured the business to be able to take those kinds of risks with customers. Um, but but uh, that allows you to get started. And then what I've seen over time is as they iterate and align on what those benchmark metrics are of performance, you can then gradually over the course of the contract go fixed fee to fixed fee plus upside incentives plus fixed fee plus upside downside, et cetera. And this can vary a lot on what your customer actually wants and whether or not, whether or not they actually want you to go at, at risk. In some situations, um, uh, you know, the providers, payers, they are willing to adopt a new technology, but they might be financially constrained to take a risk on a new solution. And so they like the idea of not having a lot of, you know, high cash outlay. In other situations, uh, you know, they don't want to give you the downstream economics. And so uh, they're, they're very willing to pay up front. And so that brings me to this sort of second tactical point, which is ultimately what I think uh, startups who approach a, um, you know, risk-based agreement in their commercial structure, what that does is has the whole company working backwards from what is the value and ROI of our product from the beginning. And that sends a message internally that, hey, we're working backwards from calculating the clinical or the financial ROI of our product to our customers. And then it sends the message to the customer that you're so confident in the solution that you're willing to put your own fees at risk, um, even if it's ultimately not in what the customer wants. And then, um, you know, they may, they may opt to go for the, the fee for service uh, rate, but even then you've oriented around how to demonstrate long-term value of your product. And so at least those two things, uh, th those two tactics are, with the ways in which I've seen founders mitigate some of the concerns that you described. So that, that, that's great. Uh, so, um, and for our audience, now's a great time to throw your questions up. And we have a question here from, uh, I think this is from Nguang, who says, for companies that opt for risk-based contracting at the outset, do they typically shift to a different structure over the longer term once they have market validation? That's, that's, great. that's a great question. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and it's, it's to some extent the point that I just made. Um, but the other point that I will, I will add is it, it's certainly very, it, it certainly can expand along the risk curve over time. Uh, and you can take more and more upside and downside risk in, um, in your contracts over time. And I, I've seen that. The, the other thing that I've seen, which I find really interesting, is companies at scale then develop a portfolio of commercial contracts with various different risk within these contracts. So a company may have you know, a large portfolio of 10, 50, 100 customers, and some customers, uh, you know, perhaps for a product where they have a lot of confidence in, it's an older product that's been in market for several years, and they have confidence around the ROI, they may have you know, really high upside downside risk exposure to that, to, you know, in the, for that um, individual commercial contract. And then when they launch a new product where they're not exactly sure and they don't have a lot of clinical case studies on the ROI of that product, they might go back to a fee for service or a more traditional, um, you know, SaaS type agreement. Uh, and I, I've seen companies do that really well. And so 
um, that that's at least one version of the future to to aspire to. So that's great. So now I'll move on to some reactions about the B to SMB. So this is selling mm -hmm. to small and medium sized businesses. So this is really interesting to me because I have seen so many uh, companies, they um, they believe for their own reasons or perhaps they got advice from VCs or perhaps they got other advice. They have to sell to the large enterprises. Um, and so this is certainly true in the world of digital health benefits where you have companies like uh, Livongo um, or, uh, uh, or uh, Omada or others selling into the employer benefits space. But it's, it, companies that go into that space, very often they are recommended to go after the progressive large employers, which is Fortune 1000 employers who often have PhDs in their HR department and who view employees as being irreplaceable assets that they want to invest in and spend a little extra on. Sounds great. Sounds like you should build your product for these buyers, in, you know, instead of for, um, and, and the view of small to medium businesses is that they are not thought leaders. They are laggards. Uh, they will not buy early innovations. They wait until it becomes uh, an established must have innovation. And for all those reasons, um, it's hard to sell to the small and medium business. What's happened over time is that this channel to the progressive large employer has gotten incredibly crowded and you have incumbents who are have suites of products who are selling, who have big sales forces, who have an advantage. You have buyers, the progressive large employer benefit leaders, the buyer who is thinking of enterprise buys and buying suites and buying at the enterprise level instead of buying individual point solutions that address specific problems. Um, so with all that going on, um, the small to medium business uh, looks very interesting. In addition, there's also old conventional wisdom that said that if you succeed in selling to the progressive large employer, then it's going to be easy to just sell that same solution a few years later down to the small and medium business. So win first with the progressive large employer, go to the small and medium business later. So, and that is an old formula, but it's increasingly less useful to new innovators who have innovative solutions. Um, and what I would just add to that, that old formula is that, um, uh, I don't think it's the case that if you win with the progressive large employers first, you can just sell that same product later to the small and medium business. I think you need a different sales force and you need a different product with different features and functionality. And you're going to have, uh, and so the company that goes after the small and medium business um, uh, in a lean way is going to have a lot of advantages for building the right product for that audience and having the right sales force for that audience. And they're not just going to be wiped out a few years later by uh, one of the uh, companies that went after the progressive large employers and, and won in that marketplace and is now taking on small to medium business. So I like that you brought up the small medium business. I think you can, you can viably have a company that pursues uh, primarily the small and medium business market. That was not this is an overlooked, underappreciated area. It was not mainstream to, to strongly support companies in this area five or 10 years ago. And I, I like what, what you're, um, I, I like that you're bringing this to light for our audience. So any, any, any reaction to that or any more thoughts on B to SMB? Yeah. I, I, for, for B to SMB, I would just say you're for any go to market motion, I think the best thing you can do is work backwards from 
the customer and what's the problem you're trying to solve for them. And I think what happened in healthcare over the last uh, several years was um, an increasing willingness from small and medium-sized healthcare practices and other SMBs in healthcare be willing to adopt technology um, with a certain motion that was efficient for a startup to serve. And let me explain what I mean by the efficient to, you know, to, to serve that segment. I think, um, I think someone asked a question on this, which is if a, if you need a practice to, uh, if you need a small practice that might, might buy a $50,000 product from you, if that practice needs, um, several months of education, uh, and customer site visits, and still requires a two-year sales cycle, and you have to have a you know senior sales leader go visit that practice several times. The the economics. Uh, oh, and then by the way, the sort of cost to keep them on there in terms of professional services, customer success, implementation costs. It doesn't really justify this, the amount of spend that you would have in acquiring that customer, retaining that customer, nurturing that account. Doesn't really justify the ACV. And what I think, so that's the sort of the economic reality. What, what happened more and more, um, you know, what we've seen with companies like Ribbon or what, what ZocDoc did or other, other companies that we spoke about in the piece was that there was sort of a, an increasing willingness from SMB buyers to adopt these technologies relatively easily, relatively proactively, relatively self-serve. And so if you take a business like Stripe outside of healthcare, what what there's many reasons that Stripe took off, but one reason that's really exciting about it is a lot of businesses were getting started. Um, they were internet native and they were willing to self-checkout. A lot of times you didn't even speak to a human uh, at Stripe to set up Stripe and start using Stripe and you swipe with your credit card. And so then that acquisition motion for the startup made it very cost-effective to justify a relatively small ACV contract. And so just to zoom all the way out, I think the advice for any startup that's thinking about selling to SMB and healthcare is when you work through your assumptions on what do you think ACV is, what do you think the lifetime value of that customer is, and then what do you think the customer acquisition cost is, and then the cost to serve over some period of time that you expect to retain that customer, can you get the math to work? Um, and what we wrote about in the piece were, were a number of companies where they were able to get the math to work in certain segments. Uh, and, and then for that reason, chose to go SMB uh, first for the, for the first several years of their business before ultimately going to the enterprise. That, that's great. Yeah. And I think a lot of us can think of products in our own life today where we bought them and used them uh, and we're never, we're never trained. We, we just self um, purchased, self deployed. Uh, and I think one of the earliest examples of this I can think of for me was back in the day when corporate network drives were absolutely terrible and all of a sudden Dropbox came out and people were just amazed. They could just, you know, put up a file up in Dropbox, invite their friends, everybody figured it out. Uh, and then you could buy your own version of Dropbox uh, or um, Dropbox, you know, might have a sales rep call your employer and say, you've already got 100 employees using this. You know, why don't you actually buy the corporate version and have administrative controls over it? But people self-deployed that. People will, um, for small businesses, will buy a Google 
apps for business and they'll never talk to a sales rep. They'll just buy it and use it. This is a critical infrastructure for their uh, company, uh, but they were never trained in it. Um, it's, and uh, they never spoke to a sales rep. They looked at a website and made a purchase on a credit card. Um, and uh, help, they were very helpfully trained by Microsoft to use Google Docs over the course of decades. Um, and Google, Google Docs is noticeably easier to use than Microsoft um, uh, and, um, and has also ridden the wave of being uh, SaaS only, whereas Microsoft has had the burden of carrying around, uh, you know, uh, uh, thick client stuff as well. Um, but I think that those are really interesting uh, examples. You know, can you, uh, can you figure out from, from B2B, I'm sorry, B2, to SMB outside of healthcare, how to do this in healthcare so that you've got certain people, a practice manager, um, a, uh, uh, an employer benefit leader, uh, a pharma clinical leader, You've got them literally downloading your software and using it without talking to anybody because of because it's so easy to use and the benefit is so great. So that, that that's a really good, a really good point. Um, and to maybe somehow get healthcare a bit away from the the heavy sales executive model, which which uh, has been so important that you know has been the primary way healthcare's been sold. Um, so um, so. Moving on to two-sided networks, can you give? I'm I'm not understanding the idea of two-sided networks or multi-sided networks very well. Can you give us a, a couple of examples of of this playing out of, of a young company pursuing this strategy? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so okay. So the the, the idea behind two-sided networks is that uh, there are businesses where you're selling to one stakeholder group. Um, <clears throat> but you're doing it not to serve that stakeholder group alone, but rather you're going to, by doing something, by selling something to some stakeholder group, providers, payers, uh, pharma companies, et cetera, it gives you permission and capabilities to do something very unique for another side. So let me give a couple examples, one uh, non-healthcare and then one healthcare example. So the non-healthcare example that we all know very well is Google. Google is a multi-sided network and a multi-sided business um, very, very clearly. Uh, Google on the consumer side, we get Google search, we get Gmail, we get, uh, you know, we get Android operating system. We get so many different products that by and large, we don't pay for. Uh, we don't pay for, for um, Google as a consumer. We don't pay for Gmail as a consumer. Enterprise is a little bit different, but we get all those products. Why does Google do that? Um, they do that because uh, they're getting eyeballs, they're getting engagement, and they're able to build a data and advertising business on the other side of the business. Um, it's a B2B facing business, and that gives them very unique permission to, um, uh, to you know, build a very lucrative advertising business on the other side. And consumer, there's a lot of consumer welfare that's generated from that uh, because we get a bunch of free, great, high-quality products. Um and in healthcare, th this is a space that we really, so at Flatiron, I already talked about Flatiron as an example. We sold to providers. We had world-class engineers building community-based, community oncology electronic health record software. Um, we had, you know, we had functionality, uh, my colleagues built that uh, were leaps and bounds above competitors. Uh, and it was a loss leader product. Um, we didn't make a ton of money on that product, but um, we did that 
one, most importantly, because of the mission and what we were trying to do for cancer care with technology. Um, and, and, and two, uh, very importantly, we were using the clinical data that was generated and the administrative data that was generate, generated through that product to build data sets that could be used for cancer research. And so um, I find it really interesting to find products that exist in the space uh, in healthcare that implement that, that sort of Google strategy. Um, GoodRx is another one. We get a, a bunch of free consumer tools to help to find affordable medicines, um, but they have a number of partnerships with manufacturers and other organizations um, to, uh, you know, that, that sort of build a, a profitable business on the other side, or at least a, an important business on the other side of their, their company. 23andMe is an example. I mean, there's a number of businesses like that that, that I find really interesting. Yeah, very interesting. 23andMe is a great example of that. They, they sell a product to the consumer. And I think for a while, at least that price point was artificially low and, and venture yeah. supported. Um, and they're providing great value to the consumer, their genetic ancestry, other, other services. Um, but then they're also learning things, you know, like so-and-so is a carrier of a certain gene or so-and-so has a certain genetic disease. Um, uh, and then, uh, and they get permission and then they have this recontactable base. So pharma says we need to, we need to engage with 5,000 people who are carriers of this gene, um, who want to be contacted by us, who've agreed. Um, and that's incredibly valuable to, to pharma. Uh, and it's also, you know, it's not the primary service 23andMe offers to, to the customers, but it is a service for them to say, check this box and you can be contacted with research opportunities um, yep. that might pay you, for example. Um, yep. And so uh, very, very interesting. I think healthcare potentially has a lot of those for, for a lot of reasons, because healthcare data is so intrinsically valuable. Uh, as an yep. example, healthcare professionals are very valuable people to, to reach and access. Um, and also because uh, patient, consumer patients often like to get tools for free or nearly free. And so how is that going to be provided to them? Uh, and the answer is that there's, there's going to be a back market. And hopefully everyone is very above board and ethical about how they say, you know, we, we, you know give us permission and we'll, we'll sell, we, and we will sell your de-identified data um, for, you know, for healthcare uses and, and people are on board with that. So very interesting. I, I think we, there, there's, there's going to be a lot more of that, um, uh, or there's a lot of opportunities for that in healthcare. And we need to, um, you know, we need to address all the issues around it. Um, th th there's a joke, by the way, in the electronic medical record <laughs> space, there's a bad joke, which goes that there's two phases in the modernization of Americans' health records. And in the first phase, uh, you, they take all of your private, personal, confidential health information and they digitize it and put it in the cloud. And in the second phase, you get a free backup in China. Um, and so we, we have to make sure that we that we successfully address all of the security and privacy and other issues like that. Uh, otherwise, th that sector is not going to thrive, and, you're, and, and you'll, you'll see some you'll see scandals and blowups and that sort of thing instead of instead of you know good services that people want. So. Um, so that, that, that's very interesting. I think, you know, there, there's so many different um, stakeholders in healthcare. It's such a high margin in general industry compared with other areas. It's so large that I think this is, that that's a really interesting area for future business models. Um, so let's see, what, what haven't we covered yet? So B2B2B. Uh, so, um, you know, having a partnership with an incumbent who has a sales force selling to your audience and working out a way 
to um, to work with them to have them resell you. So this is certainly is has always been an option. Um, but I think that among CEOs and others, this is a disfavored option. This is not. A, this is seen as not a good option. Maybe you can help us understand this better. But the two the two strikes against it are number one is that uh, is that you know you've got someone else's sales force selling your product. So if they're your sales force, you can tell them you better sell this product. I want you to make the calls every meeting. I want you to bring it up. I want you to bring it up first. I'm going to put a big bogey uh, or a big a big number if you successfully sell this for the first year, uh, etc. I want to I, you know, I want you to be motivated. I, I'm telling you to sell this. Once you it's someone else's salesperson, it's in their bag. You not only can you have trouble doing that, but it might naturally be a lower priority to them. So that's that's one problem with that uh, with the with selling through a sales channel. Um, uh, so you, you, you know you don't control it, um, and you have trouble making it attractive to the sales reps, um, uh, who might naturally favor their own company's domestic products, and you you don't get the power and the feedback of having a direct salesperson into um, you know, directly to the buyer. So having said that. Maybe it's not available to you to get a direct, successfully get a salesperson to go direct to the buyer. Maybe you have to go through um, uh, through some through another company's salespeople. The plus side is that maybe just by doing one biz dev contract, um, you now suddenly have a sales force of hundreds selling to an audience of thousands of companies um, on your behalf. That, that's the dream, but uh, I think in the minds of most CEOs, the uh, they see this as a, as a disfavored pathway. Um, so is, would you agree with that or would you say that we're missing something? Yeah, I, I, I would say that if we zoom all the way out, the overall objective that I think entrepreneurs are trying to solve with any of these go-to-market motions is how do I reach more of my customers sooner and with less capital and less burn? which is increasingly important now. We talked a lot about macro um, uh, and sort of the headwinds that come from the macro environment. And so capital efficiency is even more important now than perhaps um, it has been over the, over the past several years. And so founders using any of these go-to-market motions are trying to find uh, you know, new complementary paths to get to market faster and more efficiently. And so what we found with startups that are using channel partnerships is in, in healthcare is using it as one of multiple paths to get to market. So um, it, is, it, is the, it is unfortunately the case in healthcare that um, given sort of buyer maturity and where they are, um, you know, many enterprise buyers are sort of over the point solution fatigue. Uh, they've, got, they've been pitched by so many different solutions. They're trying to ingest so many different technologies that they're not really open for business for brand new vendor relationships. And so they're either unreachable entirely or, um, uh, you know, you can, you can reach them, but it'll be sort of a prohibitively long sales cycle to the original B2B motion that we described. And so channel can become a really powerful way to get to one of your end customers um, more quickly or, um, or, or with less capital. 
to your point on the concerns, I think what you want to figure out is you're sort of trying to manage four major headwind concerns as you're building out a partner channel strategy in complement to your direct sales motion. You're trying to manage your overall channel concentration mix. You're trying to understand your margin impact. You're trying to understand your product feedback loop, and you're trying to manage channel conflicts between different channels that you may have. So you, the, the, the founders that we see do it the best um, are not 100% through a channel partner where they've lost their relationship with their end customer uh, and they've sort of lost their ability to um, you know, control their own destiny as it relates to um, how they're selling their product when, how they're positioning it, et cetera. So the best companies manage it as some percentage of their revenue is going through the channel, but it doesn't, and they're monitoring over time such that they're still driving a direct channel impact. Channel impact. Number two and very related is margin impact. Uh, if you're giving away all your economics to your channel partner, uh, then you, you your layer in the technology stack effectively commoditizes. So you do have to manage, um, you know, how you think about uh, your economics that you share with the channel partner. And the best way to do that is to not have over-concentration with the channel partner such that you need them more than they need you. And so for that reason, we see a lot of startups who will start direct uh, and maybe over their, their first couple of years in business will only sell direct, but then layer in a channel partnership over time. The third is sort of product feedback. I mean, ultimately in the beginning days, certainly pre-product market fit, you're solving for product feedback and engagement rather than really revenue, at least in the immediate term. And so um, losing any sort of, like if you take the Intel inside approach, for example, uh, and don't really have a great, you know, direct uh, relationship with your customer, um, you might lose the product feedback that you need in order to shape your product uh, and ultimately find product market fit over time. Um, And so that's sort of a third consideration. And then the fourth is just sort of channel conflicts, which is if you are going to, um, uh, it, you know, if you are going to sell to your customer uh, directly, say provider or payer, et cetera, and um, then you partner, uh, you have a channel partnership that also is kind of your competitor, you can create all kinds of weird incentives where your channel partner is not as incented to sell your product uh, or certainly not sell it in the way that you want to sell it, um, uh, uh, you know, a- a- as you would. And so these are at least four considerations to think about. Great, thank you. So, any last questions from our audience? Um, I'll uh, we'll see if we if we have any more questions. Uh, and Jay, any sort of summarizing or final remarks on uh, you know you've you've brought this piece to market discussing the traditional go to market strategies and five more that you're seeing get increasing attention in a difficult you know sales environment. So, any any more um, any any summarizing thoughts? I would say that the the last thing is, um, you know, these five <clears throat> go-to-market motions are not mutually exclusive uh, and not exhaustive. Um, there's overlap between the strategies. I've seen companies implement multiple of them, uh, and there are others that are certainly out there that are becoming increasingly pro- uh, increasingly popular. And so, you know, part of the reason we're doing this is we'd love to hear from founders uh, and and builders and entrepreneurs and other folks out there in the digital health community that are trying new creative go to market strategies. We'd love to hear from you. Please email me. Um, my email is available on my, my LinkedIn. You can find me. Um, I'd love to hear sort of your learnings and 
you know, frankly, our objective is to gather learnings and share it back with the community so that uh, technology adoption in our, in our wonderful but uh, archaic healthcare system uh, speeds up just a little bit. That, that's great. Um, so you, you mentioned that you like to hear of interesting go-to-market um, strategies. So I'll conclude with kind of a creative, funny story that, that I heard, which was that there was someone who had invented a rock bottom priced electric toothbrush. This is ba barely mm. a healthcare story. And he knew he had to get it distributed by one of the major distributors. And number one mm. on his list was Walmart, but it could also have been CVS or others. He just needed one and his product would be a commercial success. Um, for a, it was a lower feature functionality, lower price electric toothbrush, um, uh, remarkably low cost. Uh, and so his go-to-market strategy was to find a distributor. And the way he found a distributor was um, he went to soccer games in the, I think it was the Bentonville, Arkansas area mm -hmm. and gave the toothbrushes away for free. Um, <laughs> these, these wound up, they, they were all kid oriented. They were safe and good for kids. Um, and so these wound up being used in the, in the families of Walmart executives. And sure enough, when he had his pitch to Walmart, um, you know, some of the executives in, in, in the decision chain, uh, their, their kids had been using the, the toothbrushes before he even showed up in the room to pitch them. So that, that, that's one of the more creative uh, go-to-market strategies that, that, that I've heard. Uh, and this guy really knew his, knew his customer. Um, so I love it. Um, I love it. So, creative, creative, uh, creative entrepreneurs is, uh, is always inspiring. Um, yep, that's great. Well, so good. So I think we've I think we've uh, addressed all our audience's questions. Um, so uh, you've been listening to Digital Health Investor Talk with your host Stephen Wardell. Um, Jay, thank you so much for coming to the show. Thank you for for having me, and uh, thank you everyone for listening. And Jay is a partner with Andreessen Horowitz, focused on uh, uh, on healthcare, uh, and you can follow him at twitter.com/slash jayrugani. Our next show will be Wednesday, September 6th from 4 to 5.30. The topic is supercharging innovation in healthcare. And our guest is John Bass, uh, who's a founder of Hashed Health and a pioneer of using the blockchain in healthcare and, and Web 3.0 and Web 2.0. And he runs a healthcare venture studio uh, uh, in, in Nashville. Um, and uh, for our Boston audience, I hope to see you tomorrow night, uh, Thursday, August 10th, 5.30 to 8.30 for our next Digital Health Drinks Night um, in Boston's Metro West area, Revolution Hall in Lexington. The theme is what's standing in the way of value-based care. Um, you'll find a list of our upcoming Investor Talk shows and events at stephenwardell.eventbrite.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Stephen Wardell. Um, thanks very much, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. And thanks, Jay. Thanks so much.